Well, good morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time or with us online, we're so glad that you're with us today. You know, before we jump into the book of Titus, I want to take a second and remind us to be praying for our college students uh, that are returning to class tomorrow. So uh, excited for you guys. We're praying for y'all. You know, here, here at New City, we love college students uh, because we believe God has a unique plan and a purpose for their lives. Uh, and we consider it an honor to reach them and share the gospel with them, disciple them, and then send them back out into the world to make disciples wherever God sends them. And we say often, if we can reach the campus, we can reach the world. And we truly believe that. Uh, we believe that college students are some of the most sendable people on the planet. And if we want uh, to, as we say, make disciples, multiply churches, and mobilize missionaries, we believe our college students are a key component to this strategy. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to reach the lost around the world. And I wholeheartedly believe that our college students will be an integral part to make that happen. Uh, and so be praying for our students as they seek to live on mission on their campus this fall. Uh, that being said, you know, last week, if you weren't with us, we stepped into Titus chapter 2, seeing Paul shift his focus from elders, as we saw in Titus chapter 1. Uh, and then he, he shifted Titus, Titus chapter 2 to the rest of the church body. Uh, and in the process, we, we were given a picture and a model of what discipleship looks like. Uh, again, we don't see this word discipleship come up in Titus chapter two, 2, but rather we see a picture of it put on display. You know, last week uh, was part one of our conversation on discipleship, and this week is part two. Uh, but don't worry, this won't be like coming in halfway to a movie uh, where you feel lost, I hope. Uh, you know, last week we spent about 15 to 20 minutes talking about discipleship just in general. And so if you're interested in how we think about discipleship here at New City, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and give that a listen. But all that to say, uh, discipleship here at New City Church, it's a major part of who we are. And it's not because of some unique calling we, that we have as a church. Uh, this is just what Jesus told his followers to do. And so we try to do as best, we try to do this as best as we possibly can. Uh, and if you've never heard that term, discipleship, it simply means learning how to follow Jesus or teaching someone else how to follow Jesus. Uh, maybe the idea of, a, of apprenticeship or mentoring is a helpful way to think about it, or maybe even the thought of shadowing someone at work when learning a new job. And what we see in Titus chapter 2 uh, with a picture of discipleship is that modeling godly character in discipleship, y'all, it deeply matters. When we invest in the next generation, like we see uh, modeled and happening in Titus 2, uh, building character, this can't be ignored. Uh, which is why the church community is so important. We need to model collectively what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And in Titus chapter 2, we see Paul instruct Titus to address several different groups of people, like the older men and the older women and the younger men and the younger women, and also the bondservants, uh, which we'll look at, which we'll get into next week as we talk about being a follower of Jesus in the workplace and at school. Uh, so I hope next week will be really helpful, a really helpful conversation for us as we think about leveraging our career and our work for God's purposes. Uh, but again, in Titus 2, we see the entire community addressed in what it looks like. Just to be a Christian in our ordinary, everyday life. Leading us to our main idea today, and it's the exact same as last week, and it's that intentional discipleship happens in community. Intentional discipleship, it happens in community. Uh, two, two things I want to reiterate uh, from last week, and it's that discipleship, it requires a level of intentionality, just like we see in our main idea. 
We can't just snap our fingers and grow in our relationship with the Lord. We have to take steps. We have to take action, which is why we say we value intentional discipleship here at New City. But then secondly, this is also very important, discipleship, it's a community project. It takes the entire church body to make a, uh, a, to, to make a church full of Jesus followers. Every person is integral to the discipleship process of our church. Uh, discipleship is not just a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Yes, that's part of it, uh, but it's an all of the above strategy. Discipleship here, it involves our Sunday gatherings, our city groups, our serve teams, our smaller discipleship groups of three to five people. And then it also involves the people inside of them to be intentional to invest in other people. And again, like I said last week, our discipleship process, we can, can only go as far as our people inside of it are willing to take it. And I'll be the first to say, y'all, we need each other. Like we need each other. Uh, here at New City, we're not just a group of people. We're a family on mission. We can't live this life alone. We weren't designed for that. Uh, we all need multiple relationships in our life that point us to Jesus. Uh, and there's no hiding this. Okay, if New City Church is your church, know this. We take very seriously our efforts to invest into your life and wanting to see you grow and be built up in the Lord and to help you live out the call that God has put onto your life. Uh, we don't have all the programs like we don't have all the bells and whistles, but I do know, I know what we do have is we have a deep devotion to see Jesus change and transform every life that God brings into our midst. And so we're committed to this. We know we can't change the lives of people, but we want to do everything within our means to see people grow and be built up into the Lord, the one who can actually do the changing and the transforming. An intentional discipleship with an entire community is a key component to see that play out. Now, I'm very aware uh, that I personally can't disciple every single individual person that walks through our doors. It's just not possible. And because of that, every person is an integral part of the discipleship process for our church. I mean, we all have strengths and gifts, and God wants to use all of them for all of the people around us. And so again, discipleship, it is a community-wide effort. And every person that calls New City Church home, we adamantly believe that God wants to use you in mighty ways and to live uh, on purpose with those around you. And as we'll see, uh, just like we saw last week, about half of discipleship, it just happens in everyday, ordinary life. Like, there's some things that are learned uh, in a Sunday service setting like this, like things that we can learn, and there are other things that are picked up and learned and just modeled while folding laundry or, or at the ball field or at the dinner table. And the things that we see in Titus 2 in regards to character, honestly, are learned more in just like a, a serving environment or at the ball field or just kind of in everyday life than more so than just a classroom setting. But we need both. And as we've talked about in the book of Titus, all of this is essential to becoming a healthy church that lasts. Because when the church stops investing in people and discipling people up into, into maturity, it's essentially giving itself an expiration date. And our hope for New City Church is that we would see a ripple effect of intentional discipleship that starts now and reverberates for many years to come and is sent out all over the world. And that's not just our, this is not our special grand magnificent plan. Like this is Jesus's plan to reach the world. And so that said, just like last week, we're gonna ask the question today again, how do we intentionally disciple others? And the answer to that question is number one, 
Teach the word. And number two, model the word. And I'm repeating this for several reasons. But the primary reason is so that it, is a be- it has a better chance of sticking. Uh, discipleship is just a major part of who we are. And, and how we actually do it, we want that to stick. And so that's our outline for today. It's the same main point and the exact same outline from last week. But don't worry, it is a very different sermon. And as we look at a different part of Titus 2 uh, that we'll look at in just a minute, uh, you'll see how it's different. Because as I said, our passage, it addresses multiple different groups of people showing what to model in discipleship and specifically targeted to each individual group. You know, last week we focused on the men and this week we're going to focus on the women. Uh, So let's look at Titus 2 verses 1 through 6 again. Follow along with me uh, starting in Titus 2 uh, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Again, last week, uh, we looked at Paul's charge to the older men and the younger men. And we saw how these were, there's some overlap in some of these various groups. We also saw how a few of these things were more specific and targeted to individual groups. And like we said last week, both men and women, y'all, we're very different. Like we have different needs and struggles. And as we think about discipleship for both men and women, there's a lot of overlap, but we also need to make sure that we address some of these unique struggles for each group. You know, our, our smaller discipleship groups we have, there's three to five people in them. And I'd encourage you to use this list in Titus 2 for both the men and the women. Uh, it's just as talking points in your group, just to assess where we each may need to grow. And just as a side note here, uh, in almost every discipleship group that we have that happens in our homes midweek during our city group time, uh, where people kind of share and pray for one another, uh, it, it always seems to be uh, the ladies that take the longest. This is just a general observation Uh, The guys tend to move pretty quickly, it seems like. This is just me observing. Uh, And it started to really make sense in Titus chapter 2 because the younger women have seven things to talk about and the younger men have one. Uh, So apparently there's just more to talk about for the women. Uh, But just as a, a quick refresher from last week, we zeroed in on the older men to remain steadfast and to endure, to not coast, and to be, uh, but rather to be a stable presence in the life of the church, modeling endurance and trial and hardship. We are praying this for our men. And then for the younger men, the one charge was to be self-controlled. Almost every group in Titus is given this charge, but the younger men are urged to be self-controlled. And this week, we're focusing our attention in verses 3 to 5 of Titus 2, two looking at Paul's charge to the older women and the younger women. And y'all, I wasn't going to fall into this trap last week with the men, but yet I kind of jokingly gave gave an age, uh, acknowledged that for an age, you know, what that would be, that age bracket for the young church, and it would put these men into the old man bracket. But you better believe uh, that my mama taught me better than to go around calling women old. Uh, And so we just say are more mature women, okay? Uh, But I do want to say this. Every lady in this room is both in the older woman and the younger woman bracket because there are people in your life that are both older than you and also younger than you. And so all the ladies, listen up today. 
And men, just like the women last week, we're included as part of this conversation to be encouraged and exhorted. So yes, men this week, you too can be encouraged. So listen up. Uh, Look at verses three to five again. We're just going to read it again. Older women, likewise, there'll be reverent behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So that's our text for today. That's what we're wrestling with. And through it, we'll see our two points, which are to teach the word and model the word. Uh, But we're going to spend more time on our second point as we dove deeper into last week into teaching the word. Uh, And also, just because our list for the ladies is a little bit longer uh, so in the modeling the word section. So Paul was, in, he was uh, encouraging the older, more mature women uh, to teach and train the younger women to invest in them, to disciple them, and to model for them godly character. And so I want to get to our first point quickly because we see in verse 3, Paul tells Titus that the older women are to teach what is good. And then in verse 5, he mentions that the younger women need to be trained, is what it says, by the older women. And then at the end of verse 5, after he gives the list, Paul says, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Again, seeing how the way we live, it displays what we believe. And to take it a step further, the way we live, it's a testimony to the world that God's word is precious. And so focusing on our life and character is not a step, is not step one to Christianity. Step one and every step after is delighting in Jesus and the gospel where then our life and our character is an overflow and it's a response that what we believe in in God's word, in the gospel, that it's actually good news. Now, this is a foundational truth that's often missed in Christianity. You know, our primary focus in Christianity is to not be a better, is, is not to be a better person. Our primary focus is Jesus and the way we live our life. That's the byproduct of focusing on Jesus. It's the fruit that's produced because we're focused on Jesus and not ourselves. And so, yes, we're going to see a lot about godly living today. But we need to continually remember that these things are secondary and our devotion to Jesus is primary, uh, which is why teaching God's word is so important because it points us to Jesus as our motivation. All that to say, how do we intentionally disciple others? So how do older women disciple younger women? Well, number one, we teach the word. You teach the word. Again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but I do want to reemphasize this because everything we see described as what needs to be taught is first found in God's word. Older women, it says in verse three, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So if the older women are to teach what is good, it says, we must acknowledge that absolutely must include God's word. Because the most good thing that can be taught about is God himself. There's several things that we're going to see today that are good, that are targeted to married women and mothers, but single, uh, but single women, and, and also to all the men, there's a lot here for you too. Because if we were to teach what is good, it must include the good news of the gospel. Because the greatest picture of good is God showing his goodness by giving up his son Jesus to die on the cross so that the world, the whole world, could know him and have a relationship with him. And so no matter where you are on the spectrum, man, woman, old, young, single, married, brand new Christian, or maybe you've been a Christian for 30 or more years, this charge is for all of us. Because to teach what is good must first start by teaching about God's goodness. We all need to be reminded of this. 
But older women, more specifically, Titus 2 instructs you to teach the younger women about the goodness of God, to teach what is good. And so if you see younger women move to despair over a relationship or the lack of a relationship or over parenting or in their marriage, steer their eyes towards the goodness of God to remember that God is good. When you see young moms tired and weary over mothering, direct their hearts towards Jesus and the goodness of God that is found in his word. When we see ladies tempted to settle for what is not pure or to be steered towards a misguided identity or to struggle with their body image, point their eyes to the goodness of God. Because as we know, their worth is not found in their body or who they're dating or what any man thinks of them. Their worth is not found in their career or their ambitions or their possessions or clothes. No, their worth is wholeheartedly wrapped up into the goodness of God. Because through the gospel, God looks at every man and woman and says, you're my beloved. (laughs) No matter what the world says, no matter how bad you've messed up, all the women know this. If you are in Christ and you have trusted in him, God says to you, you are my beloved daughter. I love you and you're mine. And that can't be taken from you. No matter where you are in life, God says to you, you are mine. Older women and younger women, and also our men, may this be said on repeat in our lives and to those around us. Don't look to ourselves, look to the goodness of God that is found in the gospel. So how do we know that God is good? Well, we look to the cross of Christ. Remember the cross, because God's miraculous goodness is put on full display at the cross. Women teach what is good. And God's word must be the first place we go in discipleship to teach, uh, we teach the word. Uh, And every time we teach the word, we point to the cross both men and women in all stages of life, I'm praying that you know the word so well that you can fiercely and courageously speak it into the crevices of everyday life for those around you. So again, teach the word. It's essential in discipleship. But the next one, we'll spend most of our time. How do we intentionally disciple others? Well, number one, we teach the word. And number two, model the word. You know, last week we talked about this with the men, uh, and this week we're going to talk about it with the women. Uh, women, model the word to each other. And again, Titus tells us uh, what the women are to model. Well, let's look at it again at verse 3, one more time. Verse 3 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And just to reemphasize uh, the list for our older, more mature women, you have four charges of things to do, and then you have uh, two things to do, and then two things to avoid. Uh, it says, be reverent in behavior and teach what is good. That's for the older women. That, that's what they're to do. And what are they not to do, it says? It's to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. That's what Titus 2 says. Last week, we talked about reverence in behavior in conjunction with the older men being dignified. And it's that idea of not being rude or crude or brash. But then more specifically for the older women, it says, don't be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Again, that's just what it says. In essence, don't gossip and don't drink too much. Something that I I think that is helpful around this conversation is just to think about the city of Crete, uh, where this letter was written. And some of the historians have said about this city uh, was that this was a wild city. Uh, Back in Titus 1, chapter 1, verse 12, it says Cretans were always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
Like these were lazy people and they had no self-control, so much so that every group mentioned in the book of Titus is charged to be self-controlled. I mean, self-control, it is a major reoccurring theme in the book of Titus. Uh, and so let's just say what, what you find in this city, maybe it wouldn't have jived uh, with Mary Poppins and Mr. Rogers. Like good morals, they weren't at the top of this list. And because of that, we see this list pop up, and Paul had to tell Titus to instruct the older women to not sit around, drink a bunch of wine, and gossip. They were addicted to wine and slandering, it says. So both men and women, we see that this was a problem in Crete. And so for us today, watch out for this in your own life. Show self-control with how you speak and what you drink in all settings. Uh, but then uh, as we move on, it says for the older women to train the younger women, and then it gives a list of seven things. Look at verse 4 and 5 again to see the instructions for the older women uh, to the younger women. Verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. It's quite the list. And Paul tells the older women that the younger women need to be trained towards these things. Like, it's going to take work and effort because it won't come natural. And the first two things it says to train them in is to love their husbands and children. I mean, look, look back at verse 4. That's exactly what it says. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And I hate to admit this, but I know I snore at times. I've never actually heard it. Well, she actually did record me one time to prove the point. But uh, I have some strange quirks, I know, uh, that Kelly has had to learn to love. This is just what happens when you get married. Because when you move in, after you get married, you start to see all the things that before were just kind of hidden. Uh, this happens in every marriage. You know, the honeymoon phase and excitement wears off, and you wake up one day, and you're like, oh, like, you're still here. <laughs> like, don't you need to go somewhere? I, I think I need some space. Uh, and before I got, get into this, yes, I want you to know that Kelly gave me permission to tell this story. I'll never forget coming home several weeks after our honeymoon, and Kelly, bless her heart, is in the closet crying, saying, I want to go home. And I'm like, babe, with a big smile on my face, arms open wide, babe, you're home, I'm here. <laughs> she just looked at me and kept crying. In the honeymoon, at that point, it was clearly over. Obviously, we worked through it, uh, but there comes a point in every marriage where you have to choose to love your spouse, even when you don't want to, because the infatuation is over. And love, at that point, it becomes a choice. Listen, loving our spouse, it's not founded on an emotion or a feeling. It's a choice. And it's also a command. Now, I can say that I genuinely love uh, my wife, Kelly, more now than the day we got married. I'm head over heels for her. I really mean that. I dearly love her. But there are some days for both of us, we both know, when love is a choice. We have to get over ourselves and choose to actively and intentionally love each other. And that's the first thing Paul tells Titus to teach their, the younger women to love their husbands. The same thing is true for children. That's the second thing on the list in verse four. Because when those babies, when they don't stop crying and you're tired and you want sleep and they won't let you sleep or when parenting is just extra difficult, again, you still have to choose to, to actively love them. And, and that's what Titus is saying here. Older women train the younger women to love their husbands and kids. And husbands and dads, this, this is for you too. 
Single women and men, remember this. And even now, remember, it's, it's for others in your life, for parents, uh, for your parents, for siblings, and for your friends. Because actively loving someone is not based on an emotion. It's a choice we make. And we don't love because we want to or don't want to. We do it because Jesus first loved us. Again, our motivation to love is a response to the love God has displayed to us in the gospel. Because remember, the people of Crete, they weren't easy to love. They were described as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So they needed to be trained to love others, to actually love their husbands and children. Older women, model this for the younger women. This is part of discipleship. And then a few of the others that are mentioned here in the list in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again to continue the list. What the older women are to, be, are to train the younger women. It says to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, and that the word of God may not be reviled. And then the three that I want to point out first is to train the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, and kind. To display kindness, to not be rude or cold, or just to be kind and friendly. And then also to be self-controlled and pure. You know, we talked about self-control at length last week. But the women need this too. Be self-controlled with a pure mind, with what you watch and look at, with what you read. You know, men are often the ones that get the purity, sex, and pornography talk. But women, this applies to you too. Keep a watch of this in your life. Be self-controlled with your finances, with your speech, with your wants and desires, with your thoughts, with your time, with what you say yes to and what you say, what you say no, no to. All of our women in all stages of life, and the men too, I pray that y'all are talking about these things in your small discipleship groups. Both men and women of New City, may we be kind and pure and self-controlled people. But then next, I want to address the elephant in the room. Uh, because maybe you noticed I skipped over two on the list. And because I'm very aware that this is one of those passages that people point to and say, See, the Bible is so misogynistic. Saying that it encourages male dominance because of the idea surrounding submission and working in the home. These two things I know are often hard to wrestle with, uh, especially in our American culture. They're the most tripped over on the list. And I'm sure that some women in the room may be squirming a bit, wondering what in the world I'm going to say. Because anytime women in submission are used in the same sentence, it can feel like a curse word in our culture because of all the twisted and poor examples that our culture portrays making it seem like the church is reiterating male dominance, which we need to just acknowledge is a twisted, a twisted lie and absolutely not what the Bible teaches. But submission and working in the home, it comes up in our text. It's in the Bible. And so we have to wrestle with it. We don't ignore or skirt around anything here at New City. We take God's word as pure and holy and right. And we seek to honor it in every way possible by doing what it says while also not speaking where the Bible doesn't speak. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of overspeak in these areas that may need to be corrected. And I've said this for the past two weeks, and I'll say it again today. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible that paints a picture that says that men are better than women, or that men have a more important role than women. Any talk that says uh, that the Bible paints a picture of male dominance clearly doesn't understand the Bible. Because there is nothing in the Bible that calls men to any type of authoritarian, dictator-like type of leadership. No, not at all. In fact, the Bible calls husbands to lay down their life for their wife and their children. 
And what we need to make clear is that both men and women have equal value and worth with yet distinct God-given roles as shown in God's word. And here's the thing that's interesting about all of this. You know, people in the church and also in our culture, those that often buck up against men and women having different roles in marriage and in the home, uh, most of the time love it and applaud it when they see it played out in a healthy way. Like it's cheered and it's valued greatly. Where on the flip side, it's often the unhealthy models and examples put on display that cause people to reject this idea of complementarianism. Uh, And again, (laughs) complementarianism is just a fancy way of saying men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities as shown in the Bible. And the book of Titus is one of those places where we see these distinctions made more clearly. Uh, But I want us to understand this in a more uh, healthy way by looking at the whole picture of the Bible and not just from a list that shows this idea in isolation. Now, there are many other passages that display that both men and women have equal value but different roles. We see in the book of of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, that when a husband and a wife have mutual love and respect for one another and serve one another, it's an incredible picture of the gospel. Because when a husband who is called to lead his wife models the leadership that Jesus displayed, it displays the gospel. Where in essence, Jesus laid down his life for the church. Like Jesus literally died for the bride of Christ, which is the church. And so it's clear that marriages are to paint a picture between the relationship between Jesus and the church. And what we know is that Jesus came to serve and not to be served. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Yes, his disciples followed him, but Jesus gave up his life for them, and he served them. Jesus showed nothing but love and respect to his disciples. And so when we talk about submission and male headship, as seen in Ephesians 5 and also here in Titus 2, we need to remember that it can't be taken out of the context of the husband's call to lay down his life for his wife. And so what we must understand is that a picture of marriage is not a a woman submitting to her husband that looks like them serving them hand and foot while the husband sits on the couch watching TV, making endless demands. New City Church, that is a load of garbage that we must adamantly reject. In fact, if we want to use that picture, I would argue that it would be more accurate for it to be used the other way around because the husband's responsibility is to serve and not to be served. And Jesus modeled that for us. But in reality, the better and more accurate picture is that there should be a mutual serving of one another, seeking to outserve one another. And when the husband shows a level of self-control and a level of sober-mindedness and ongoing wisdom and discernment and dignified and displays ongoing love and kindness as we see a model and talked about in Titus 2 and seeking to follow the Lord in faith and taking into consideration everyone that is involved with love, the hope And the picture is that the wife would be zealous and joyful and excited to follow his lead. Because when we think about biblical submission in marriage, we need to think of following a God-honoring leader that is following Jesus in all areas of his life and not twisting arms and demanding control like an authoritarian or a dictator. Jesus did not come in forcing his people to follow him. Jesus first served his people. He loved his people and gave up his life for his people. And in turn, those that follow him, they were eager to do so. But but the problem with this idea of submission, however, (laughs) there's this thing called sin that kind of messes the whole thing up. Where men do bonehead things that are sinful and don't honor the Lord, and women lose trust. And in turn, reluctant to follow their lead. And on the opposite spectrum, 
Maybe the husband is seeking to follow the Lord and honoring the Lord with his actions in life and trying to make wise decisions, but the wife may be reluctant to follow, just kind of showing a struggle on her part. And most of the time, there's probably a mixture of both. I know Tim Keller describes this like a dance uh, where it takes two parties working together in mutual love and respect uh, to display the beautiful picture of the gospel. And if one partner is out of sync, it misses uh, the beat and rhythm. Like the whole dance is thrown off. You know, we see uh, this picture display in the gospel where Jesus laid down his life for his bride, seeking to serve her in every way possible in his church lovingly follows. Y'all, this is a beautiful thing. I'm praying that we would be a church that is full of marriages that display the gospel to the world of how we love and serve one another. It is an incredible privilege. And in all of it, grace and regular forgiveness and deep satisfaction in Jesus, it's essential in a healthy marriage. Uh, Just to help put some flesh on this, I'll give you a few examples uh, with me and Kelly of what submission looks like in our marriage. Uh, And what I want to lay out there is that by no means is this perfect, and we're both constantly trying to grow in this, but at the end of the day, when this is working for us, it usually starts with me. It starts with me considering Kelly's wants and desires before my own. It starts with me serving her and laying down my life for her and listening to her thoughts and struggles and emotions and needs. For example, just in a normal day-to-day thing, if it were up to me, we'd be going to Applebee's on date nights. Like, I love Applebee's. Like, they got great specials and great Cajun pasta. I love it. It's great. But because I consider my wife's preferences, we go to local places that are a little bit more uh, fancy, like Hall on Franklin or Cask or Green Lemon, which are all a little bit more uppity in downtown. I mean, Applebee's is around the corner. But Kelly likes fancy, and so we go downtown, and we do the whole fancy thing. And in all honesty, in a lot of these small day, smaller day-to-day decisions, I try to defer to Kelly on most things. This is just how we work. Here's another example for a bigger decision in our life. When we were thinking about where we wanted to plant a church, my first thought was like Boston or New York City. I thought the big city would be kind of fun, but Kelly doesn't like cold weather. Uh, We didn't think our kids would thrive in a shoebox apartment in New York City, so we considered her desires and we planted here in Tampa. And in all honesty, you know, very rarely do Kelly and I not uh, make decisions together. You know, some of, our, some of the bigger decisions uh, where we've discussed, uh, we've sought outside, or where we've disagreed, we've sought outside counsel and wisdom to help us. We've just always valued other people speaking into our life and marriage. You know, I can only think of a handful of times when Kelly and I have uh, disagreed on a major and a non-moral decision where she just had to defer to me to make the final decision, knowing that she wouldn't prefer my choice. In all honesty, looking back on some of them, I probably should have considered Kelly more than I did, and I just just deferred to her preferences. But in those moments, Kelly was confident that I loved her, and I wanted what was best for her and our family, and she let me lead in that area. But then the last thing we need to think through from the list is the concept of working in the home, as seen in Titus 2.5. It says, older women are to train the younger women, uh, and the phrase says, working in the home. And again, I want to make this very clear that this absolutely does not mean the wife does all the cooking and cleaning while the husband sits around and does nothing. We absolutely reject that and we despise that. Any picture that portrays that is adamantly opposed to the Bible because that's the man just being flat out lazy uh, and maybe inappropriately domineering. This is another one of those areas where it's easy for overspeak to happen here. We need to be careful with this and look at the entire Bible to help understand what Paul means. Uh, That being said, Paul does not mean what he does not say. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say that a wife or a mother should not work outside the home. 
Proverbs 31, the picture of the ideal wife shows differently. The wife is portrayed in Proverbs 31 uh, is clearly working in the marketplace. She's buying and selling goods and land, making a profit. She's working with her hands, planting a, planting a vineyard. She's in the public sphere, working and laboring to help with her family's needs. And so we need to be careful not to teach two different things in two different places. So how we teach Proverbs 31 and how we teach Titus 2 must align and not fight against each other. And the Proverbs 31 woman portrays a woman that works outside of the home to help with their family's needs. We also have examples of Lydia and Priscilla who are businesswomen in the New Testament. We have example after example of women working outside the home. And nowhere in the Bible can we find a place where women are criticized for working outside the home. However, I say that while at the same time, where we see women encouraged more specifically is to keep a close watch in the Bible in regards to work, uh, is, to re- is to remember to not neglect the responsibilities in the home with their husband and their children and helping to keep the home in order. Paul has encouraged Titus time and time again to encourage both the wim- men and the women to keep a close watch on their home life. Because if what we believe about the gospel and Jesus are true, and if it has changed our life, one of the first places of transformation will happen in our closest relationships. It'll affect our marriage and our parenting, how we work, our life at home. It affects every nook and cranny of our life. And because of that, it affects the decisions we make in relation to work and family. And if you remember, we talked about the reputation that Crete had. And this comes into play again here in regards to working in the home. Because remember, the Cretans were known as lazy gluttons, as described in chapter 1. And more specifically for the young, young women, they're charged here, in essence, to not be lazy. Some have said uh, that these Cretan women were busybodies, that they wanted to be busy everywhere but in the home. And Paul tells Titus, hey, get the older women to teach the younger women to make the home a top priority, to make your husband and kids a top priority. And notice it's not saying the mother and wife is a slave driver, but rather the charge is to not neglect the home. And I want to help put some flesh on this one as well for how this has played out in our family. Uh, I want to say up front, I know this doesn't work for everybody. Uh, This is just how we've done this as a means for our family to prioritize uh, our home and family. And I I know other families have done this differently and have different stories, and that's okay. Every family is different. Uh, But before uh, Kelly was pregnant with Addie, our oldest, I was working in ministry about 30 hours a week and also in a sales job 25 25 hours a week. And Kelly was a teacher full-time. In my 55 hours a week between two jobs, I made less than Kelly as a teacher. I had previous experience in the business world, so I left my ministry position that I loved, and I went to work full-time so Kelly could stay home with our daughter, Addie. And ever since, we've made it a a priority for our family. Uh, Kelly's had several different job opportunities. She's worked in several different jobs and had a few different uh, side hustles with kids and babies. But we have always prioritized her staying home, if possible, just especially during the baby and toddler years. Even if it means making less or our finances being strained and tighter than we like, our thought has always been uh, we can make more money later. Our first priority right now uh, is to invest in our kids. And again, I want to emphasize this isn't always possible for everyone. And Kelly and I have been through seasons where we're both working, trying to balance everything. But if wisdom allowed, we wanted Kelly to stay home with our kids, even if it meant having significantly less money. Again, this is a wisdom issue for every family and for everyone that has different life seasons. But I'll say this. From what we see in Titus 2, from a big picture What Paul is essentially telling Titus to emphasize are our priorities. Moms and dads, husbands and wives, prioritize your marriage and prioritize your children. 
Notice Paul didn't talk to the older men and women or younger men and younger women and tell them to prioritize making more money or their career or having a better lifestyle. Paul basically says, watch your doctrine, watch your character, watch your life, and make your family, your spouse, and your children a top priority in your life. Like moms and dads, our kids need us. There's no hiding this. Kids need our direction and help. They need to, us to read with them, pray with them, eat dinner with them, talk with them, put them to bed and play with them, listen to them and give them wise counsel. And we need to make margin in our lives to make this happen. And do whatever it takes with, within our means to be with our family as much as possible and to make that a top priority in our life. And again, I understand that it looks, looks different for everyone and in different seasons. And for those that are single today, I know that a lot of this has been charged towards uh, marriage and family, but know this, moms and dads and husbands and wives, they, they need you in their life, single people, and you, you need them in their life, in your life. We need people from all stages of life in our life to mentor and disciple us. And what this looks like is maybe coming uh, over during nap time, Uh, and helping to fold laundry and talk about uh, life in the meantime, or maybe sitting on the stands at the ball field and cheering from the kids while you talk about life. Because again, intentional discipleship, it happens in community. It just happens in everyday common life. But in all of these things, with all of that said, I want to end our time by saying this. Whenever we see a list of characteristics to live up to, I am very aware that it can feel like a daunting weight and maybe even cause unnecessary guilt and shame. And yes, we just spent a lot of time talking about all of these things to do and not to do, and those are good and right, and they need to be addressed because the Bible talks about them. But our application in all of this is to not go and be better and to try harder and to be a more moral person. Our primary application is not to be the best wife or mom or mentor you can possibly be. Those are all secondary things. When they become primary, that's when guilt and shame come heaping in our souls. And that is not from the Lord. Because if our motivation for godliness is trying to live up to a standard that goes against our natural flesh, y'all, I hate to break it to us, but it won't last. It's driven by guilt and shame. And that is not from the Lord. Again, our application is not to try harder and be better, to be a better woman or mom or wife. No, our primary application is to continually look to Jesus and go to him. Because at the cross, at the cross, there is no guilt and shame. There is only grace and mercy that drives us towards a new way of living. Yes, I just listed off seven things for the younger uh, women and four things for the older women to do and not to do and to model. But again, those things are secondary. And what Paul primarily points us to, or what regularly points us to as primary is Jesus Christ. Again, just like I said at the beginning, our life and everything in it, our character, how we disciple others, it's all a response to what we believe. We start and we end the Christian life with Jesus, with deeply abiding in Jesus. We don't start with morals. No, we start with Jesus. We daily need the gospel in our life. If we leave Jesus and the gospel out of this conversation, we're leaving out our source of power to actually live these things out. Because as we know in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, we know that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. New City Church, 
The good news of the gospel tells us that Jesus came to earth, Jesus appeared to rescue his people from their sin by going to the cross and dying so that, then, uh, so that he could then be raised from the dead and enter into the hearts and lives of those who believe. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in the way that God calls his people to live. It's not perfect, but it is full of recurring and daily grace. It is full of renewing forgiveness. The gospel is not just a means to salvation, but it is also our means for growing in godliness. Jesus saves us, and he also empowers us. But we can't have the power of the Holy Spirit if Jesus isn't Lord of our life and salvation. And to that I say, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I want to ask you today, would you trust in him today? And would you tell someone? Because Jesus is waiting on you to come to him. And when you come to Jesus and give your life to him, he starts to change you. Not out of your own strength and willpower, but because of God's grace. God's grace is daily and it's a renewing strength that empowers us to follow Jesus. And in all of this, I hope that you've seen we weren't meant to follow Jesus alone. We as a church here at New City, we want to come alongside each other and help each other. We, need, we all need help following Jesus from the brand new Christian or to the person who's walked with Jesus for over 30 years. Because as we've seen, following Jesus, it is a community project. And we need each other for this. Because again, intentional discipleship, it happens in community. Let's pray. God, I just pray for all the people in the room today and also watching online. If there's any guilt or shame or heavy burden or weight, Father, I pray that it would be laid at the foot of the cross. That they would look to the cross and see that you have called them a beloved daughter, that you have called them a beloved son. If there are people here that have not trusted in you, Father, I pray desperately that they would give their life to Jesus and that they would follow you as Lord of their life. God, you are good. You are all wise. We all need you. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.